Hello, and welcome to Out of Oscar, a film and Oscar podcast where a special guest and myself focus on unsuccessful Best Picture contenders, plus the Academy's nominees. So hello, Ben. Welcome back. Hello. Thank you very much for having me again. And last time we discussed three films from 1998 and the Shakespearean love versus Saving Private Ryan rivalry. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and a, a week before we have Dakota Power of the Dog rivalry following right nipping on its heels. Yeah. Like the Oscars never change. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Today we're discussing Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, an eight-time nominee that found itself snubbed from the competitive Best Picture ballot of 1977. Close Encounters was nominated for Best Picture Equivalents at the National Board of Review, Golden Globes, National Society of Film Critics, New York Film Critics Circle, and at the BAFTAs. I think that's the most we've had so far on this episode for like a really healthy run in the lead up to the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Close Encounters tells the story of Roy Neary, an everyday blue collar worker in Indiana whose life changes after an encounter with a UFO. It's directed by Spielberg and primarily stars Richard Dreyfuss, Melinda Dillon, Francois Truffaut and Terry Garr. Let's get into f- Close Encounters. <laughs> let's let's do that. Indianapolis, Aries 31 has traffic 2 o'clock, slightly above. Can you say aircraft type? Uh, negative center, uh, no distinct outline. Tell you the truth, the target is rather brilliant. Wait a second, he's heading right for my windshield. The traffic is approaching head on. Alter right and really moving. And right by us, right now. Thirty-one. Do you wish to file a report of any kind of it? I wouldn't know what kind of report to file, Senator. Now, I could see this being childhood nostalgic viewing for some. Is there a nostalgia that comes with Close Encounters for you? You know, it's funny. I always, I always remember the certain things about Close Encounters. At least when I first saw it as a kid, um, you know. As, as a as a kid kid my my parents used to watch it all the time when it was on TV and I always thought to myself and it's like this it's a lot of a lot of talk a lot of a lot of like I know it's aliens at the end because you see that it's one of those movies where you've seen certain scenes uh, a bunch of times but not necessarily seeing the entire movie all the way through mm-hmm. like um the Francois the Francois Truffaut stuff for like the first you know 45 minutes. And all that, or that stuff in the middle where they're actually investigating all that stuff, that is compl- like when you when you watch that as an adult, you're like, I don't remember that at all when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It's because you don't care about any of that. You care, you you know, the the glowing light, the kid getting stolen, the guy making the mashed potatoes, the guy making the mountain in his, uh, he, he's making the Roy making the mountain in his living room, going up the mountain, and then the aliens at the end. It's and and the music and mm-hmm. all it, it's it's more flashes. But there's a lot of that in the middle with Truffaut. Like Truffaut does not have a small role in this movie. It is not like a glorified cameo for a, a director who doesn't really act. It's yeah. a legit role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just I completely forgot that he was in this film. I just love that a French New Wave director made his way to Spielberg. 
it's a even, super nerdy thing for Spielberg to do. Yeah, and even like some <laughs> French directors really praise Spielberg's work in this film, calling it like groundbreaking, comparing him to, geez, even the people who invented film itself. So yeah, high praise from at least that department. But yeah, I think I had a similar thing where, whereas I watched it quite some time ago and I had a different idea of what this film was going to be coming back to it. I also liked it a little bit more this time because I could appreciate that bureaucracy that Mm -hmm. intertwines that you don't really appreciate as a kid. And even like Spielberg's tongue in cheek nods that are not really overt, but are there if you've got the eye for it, like how Mm -hmm. they have to disguise the mission. So they disguise it behind American consumerism. And that's really funny if you want to think about it, like no one's going to bat an eye at that seeing thousands of trucks with like, Baskin Robbins like coming through like I just think that's really funny this time around and it's also like uh it's 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 the good it's that kind of in that cold war paranoia they're like uh well you know it's like well there's all this you know can't we all need to go to devil's tower and they're like no no no, you can't go to devil's tower because of uh um nerve gas and Mm -hmm. you're like well that's that's a that's nerve gas like that's not a thing that's ever been a thing and it's it, it very much like late 70s like Ooh, you're scared. What's actually going to scare, keep people away? Um, you know, it's, it's not just a fantasy thing and just this little story. It's, it's a lot deeper than you would expect it to be. Mm-hmm. And I also like Roy's disillusionment arc because I, f- I find it really compelling because we've seen what Roy has seen. If that was a mystery, you would also sort of question it and think that he was just yeah as zany as those guys by the side of the road i guess they're just like hicks who yeah are really just conspiracy theorists yeah i mean if 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 without the actual encounter that roy has like if if you if you have any question about whether or not that's real you realize that he essentially goes nuts enough where his kids and wife leave and he does not care like mm-hmm. his kids and wife are gone and he's just like, whatever, I saw aliens. And it's, it's a very, the, the, the one side of that, it makes Roy very, um, uh, it, it makes him likable. It keeps him likable as opposed to, Hey, this guy's just a nut and he doesn't care that his kids and wife are gone. In reality, it makes him totally grounded to be like, man, this thing is real it has shaken me to my core and i can i will never be the same again because of how insane this happened and just to get into a little bit how the film goes so roy he lives in indiana and he has a close encounter at a train crossing he's not quite sure what had happened but he he finds his path crossing with jillian played by melinda dillon who was nominated for best supporting actress yes. uh, whose son barry has gone missing from an alien encounter or a close encounter. And they've all had this vision of a mountain and Roy himself makes it out of mashed potato. He makes one like the size of his living room. They're compelled by this vision that they've seen. And then they come to understand that that's a location in Wyoming where a close encounter is going to happen. Richard Dreyfus is obviously more grounded than he is in The Goodbye Girl. Yeah. Did he win for the right role? Um, personally, this is this is an interesting year for it because it happens twice as far as where you could actually point this to be the case. 
Um, I personally prefer this performance just because Dreyfus does such a good job of being a shaken man that it's like this is my life is no longer the same after this and the goodbye girl a, a film i like and a performance i like but it's very um quirky bouncy mm-hmm. enjoyable fun to be had and it makes sense why the academy went to that um it, it's it's kind of like if you if you look at the two you're like okay it's one one's a much more complex performance but at the same time with the goodbye girl, you're just like, well, that's not, it's, it's more, it's more accessible than it is on a performance level um, than this movie would have been. And he's also showboating the entire time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's, he's on, he's at 11 the entire time. Yeah. yeah. There's no, there's no subtlety. There's no, you know, it, it's, it's all playing up to the camera the whole time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And we'll get there, but because you mentioned his family, I just wanted to say how, <laughs> good it was to come back to this on a repeat viewing and to appreciate terry gar's performance yeah post uh pre-tootsie in fact but post my viewing of tootsie yeah where she is undeniably my favorite in that category but even it, like melinda dillon is playing a distressed mother but she also plays it with a lot more depth yeah it's it's one of those things where she, she, her her obviously you you kind of put yourself in the position of a parent is like okay your your child's been taken okay but your child's been taken by nothing you can understand and nothing anybody else can understand and nothing that anybody else can explain so you just and so it's it's more of a it's uh it's as much of a stretch for her as it is for roy like roy's just kind of like this is all consuming i really saw what i saw she is the same exact way, but she almost doesn't care what she saw. It's what's been taken away, but what she saw took that away and she needs to understand it because I mean, where did her son go? I mean, obviously uh, it's, it's a, I really appreciated the performance and I'm, I'm, it's one of my favorite nominations of the potential nominations. I was like, man, like I kind of, kind of look through the categories and, I was like, man, Melinda Din getting actually nominated for that is pretty cool nomination. And she supplies the film's emotional arc. Once they have that close encounter at the end, you wonder if Barry is really going to walk out of the spacecraft and whether or not he does. I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it. It is if what's a a 44-year-old movie? Yeah. 45, 45 this year. (laughs) It gives people that sort of gut punch yeah 45 years where's the oscar reunion (laughs) exactly yeah i mean they're doing every other they're you know by all means let's get everything else together you can't throw richard dreyfus and melinda dillon and terry gar on screen uh bob balaban's still around why not yeah exactly yeah most of them are still around that's a good um and i just wanted to mention like how once you watch this film from the get-go and you're you're straight away in this desert environment and sort of echoes the exorcist opening albeit much less creepy yeah but there's yeah. just this great mystery and suspense to it and i think spielberg had the intuition to understand we're not going to make this like a don't look up situation where only one country is going through a global situation yeah. we're going to yeah. incorporate mongolia and India 
uh, bring Europeans over, like the French interpretation. And I really do appreciate that this time around, knowing that this film is still American-centric, but also has a broader global insight. I don't know. I think for a 70s director, it's it was a good decision. Spielberg, to that point, has had, you know, obviously you have, you kind of have carte blanche to whenever you make jaws i imagine that you probably get to do whatever you feel like doing Mm -hmm. um so you know you make jaws and you're like okay here's my opportunity what have i wanted to do that everybody has been stopping me from doing and you're like okay well how about everybody expects jaws and kind of is like okay this action or like scary it's it's so funny because if you like if you try to classify jaws as a genre you would almost mm. say it's blockbustery sure it's, and 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 that goes right into exactly the same thing with close encounters it's not it's it's sci-fi but sci-fi adjacent but it's not like completely sci-fi set in set in this mystical area it's blockbustery it's spielbergian obviously he was mm. developing that uh but you look back on it you're like boy this is exactly what you expect it to be yeah totally and i think it's why I respond to it so much. It's sci-fi centered on our own planet. Yeah. Uh, it's sci-fi with a family dynamic, a dysfunctional family dynamic, but also something that's really human driven as well, even though we're dealing with aliens at the end of the day. Yeah. And you are right in that it's def- definable as a blockbuster and that's Spielberg by definition. Yeah. Most of his films are just a blockbusters with a certain artistic flair and that's why he has made such a name for himself in hollywood yeah it's Um, it's one of those things somebody i've heard somebody describe spielberg as he's an art house guy that studio heads really can get behind and i was (laughs) like okay that's that's a really good interesting way to put it like um like jaws kind of the the everybody made so much money off of jaws they're like okay can you keep doing that and then he made Close Encounters, and it's like, wow, you did it again. Mm-hmm. And then May 1941, it's like, that's okay. We made so much money from the last two. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., and they just kept going. And they're like, man, what, why would we ever tr- not trust this guy? Because he works inside the studio system so well, but has the art house flair with it. it you know, this is those times whenever these those – those directors are like, man, this stu- these studios are screwing with me. They're messing me around. And Spielberg mm-hmm. never had that re- uh, that rebellion. He always just kind of worked within the confines of the system. And he always made it work critically, but also they always made commercial value as well. I think that's why he's a like a titan of American film. And I think he yeah. always will be. And even it continues to this day. He is nominated for Best Director at this year's Oscars. 45 Again. years after this film, which is not even his debut, he's been, nope. he's been able to flourish in the industry for decades. And will probably be nominated again next year. Expect to see Spielberg more. He's not going anywhere. No, he's not. And after a little bit of a sag in his career in the yeah. past decade, I think, he's, I think he's back. And Yeah, I agree. And rightfully so. I mean, to see that this comes between Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's like hit after hit and yeah you can definitely see like you said that blockbuster brewing in him through this film and not necessarily jaws so you are i think right in that like there was a seed in jaws and then it's sort of growing by the late 70s 
I just want to mention the final sequence. It's yeah. really remarkable. Um, Absolutely. And the film is so dependent on that working, especially this time around. I felt that payoff. Mm-hmm. And I could also appreciate it from a technical standpoint as well. Oh, yeah. I really do like the visual effects in the film. Like the editing is precise and the colors, the musical tones. That's the thing that Spielberg, Spielberg is. It's another thing he does. He doesn't, it's, it's been one of the things that kind of you look back on the stuff he does. And even in the confines of working with emerging technologies like CGI, he's always been kind of on the cutting edge with it and making it. He, he always seems to have a foresight of what it's going to look like in the future. Like occasionally he'll lose that, like with Ready Player One or the BFG, and he gets a little too reliant on one thing or the other. But man, if you look at the effects in this movie, um, uh, everybody talks about Jurassic Park more than anything else because like, man, man, why everything looks so good in Jurassic Park? It's because it goes that much harder. He's like, okay, it's it, the easier thing would be to make it computerized. What we're gonna do because I'm Steven Spielberg is we're gonna build the thing and it's gonna look real. And it's kind of the same thing with Close Encounters. The advantage being that it was 1977; they didn't have an option. They had to use miniatures. They had to use mm. the option, the the thing, the confines of what they had for the technology of their day but at the same time it doesn't make it any less realistic at the time and even now holds up in a great factor and that music it's you can just kind of hum that tune and everybody will randomly know what you're talking about it's that iconic it's it's funny that it's funny that he can work in those confines at in 1977 and make it look like it does today and that's the thing the the effects do hold up and that's not necessarily crucial but it reminds me a little bit of like 2001 where you're still marveling at how did they do this yeah. 50 yeah. years later yeah um, and it's funny we mentioned visual effects because we also have a very visual effects heavy film nominated for best picture that's obviously star wars and the reason or the factor that into why Close Encounters was not nominated for Best Picture was in a way heavily dependent on Star Wars success. Competition with that film, critically, commercially, and like we're doing right now, just endless comparisons. Yeah. And it's frustrating because the Academy's mindset was probably like, there's only room for one sci-fi groundbreaker, but we'll make room for two romantic comedies and we'll make way for two fairly dated old Hollywood-esque dramas that coincidentally are female-led. Yeah. Some of the reviews that mention Star Wars are quite disappointing. Someone saying that it lacks the humanity that Star Wars has. (laughs) And I have to disagree because, oh man, can Star Wars be very contrived? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on why it wasn't nominated? You know, it's, it's always funny. We were talking about this. I remember I had a discussion a couple of years ago with a friend of mine about why the movie Creed wasn't nominated for best picture at the Oscars. And I said, um, essentially looking at the actual lineup, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, the reason it's not nominated is because the Martian made so much money. And it's not that the Martian and Creed are go hand in hand, mm. but the Martian filled that spot. It filled the spot of the money-making movie that probably wasn't necessarily destined for awards attention, but that was the commercial hit. So that filled that spot. 
And then they went on to other things to fill in their quotas. Essentially, it's, okay, we have our box office hit. We have our critically acclaimed one. We have our other one. So, and unfortunately, for some reason, they just get stuck into these modes of, well, we can't have two of these things. This Close Encounters was a huge box office success. And it came out in late December, had huge reviews, and essentially they just immediately go to, well, Star Wars is what is something we've never seen before. So that's obviously going to be nominated. And then they, it, it reminds me a lot of um, Denis Villeneuve's uh, exclusion from the best director lineup this year. Mm-hmm. Cause they're like, okay, well, Dune, we got Dune everywhere. Dune's here, Dune's every technical thing, obviously best picture. Uh, what about best director? Well, we got, we got uh, this person that we, you know, we got the things. It's like, well, where's Denis Villeneuve? He's like, Ah, you know, the entire film gets nominated. It, he, it might as well be one for him, even though he's not. It's it's a funny little mindset where they're like, no, 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 that we it's we've done enough for it. And I think that was the same thing here. They're like, we nominated it all over the place. We got a bunch of nominations. Uh, we got Spielberg, his 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 director nomination. He probably owed for Jaws. We gave him that one. But best picture. Eh, let's 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 hold it back. Yeah, and really confusing to me, considering they embraced Jaws, which, you know, was a phenomenon. That's yeah. not confusing to me. No. But, you know, it was, in, it was included in what has become one of the best, best picture lineups of all time. 1975 yeah. is incredible. Yeah. But to see it excluded here with eight nominations, you just know it was right on the cusp. There, would, there wasn't a valuable sixth place or a... Uh, a competitive sixth place. I think it was yeah. definitely close encounters. But then the reason why they go for the other films is a bit trite, especially when you look at films like The Goodbye mm. Girl and Julia and um, The Turning Point. So forgettable. I can't even think of the name. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's so funny because there's not there there's not like a you know we're talking about Coda. Like Coda only has three nominations. Mm. Yeah, I mean. Writing, supporting actor, best picture, that's it. And that really, in, especially in 77, that's really not a thing. It's everything that gets nominated has has a bevy of nominations. I mean, Annie Hall, obviously winning best picture, but it has two, it has two acting nominations. Julia has four acting nominations. Star Wars only has the one, but it has technical nominations all over the place. Goodbye Girl has three acting nominations. Turning Point... Believe it or not, if you've seen the movie, somehow has four acting four, nominations. Yeah. We will get to that. That is a mess. But yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why they just decided it's like, hey, you know, we have we have six films to uh, we essentially have six films to fill all our categories mm-hmm. and everything else is not going to get any sort of recognition at all. Isn't that just incredible in retrospect? You look at the best pic- best actress category and they're all in best picture films. Yeah. Um, and it seemed that like acting was intertwined with the picture race, which I find interesting. Star Wars receiving one, but it's a technically heavy film. So they could yeah. award it in those categories, like Close Encounters, one acting nomination, lots of technical categories, winning one Oscar for cinematography, which is very well deserved. Just watch the whole final moment with the close encounter. Absolutely. And 
it's pure widescreen just bliss not even that like just like the both the other two encounters the 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 one with the one with roy initially like his entire initial with the with the sign swinging for the railroad Mm. that that's an incredible sequence and then the entire the entire sequence with with julian and david where david opens the spielberg to this day still says the best thing he's ever shot he's ever had is the door opening with david standing in front of it and the orange glow in the background i mean Barry. you see that yeah yeah it's it's a thousand percent uh, it, it makes complete sense why it was why it won why it won yeah, it's yeah. it's stunning um all right so we're going to move on to the best picture nominees and the best picture winner of 1977 and then we can maybe intertwine why close encounters does or does not compare to them and how they exist together we're going to go alphabetically which starts with our winner and that's annie hall Oh, well, it's a, this is a, this ties present from Grammy Hall. Who? Grammy, Grammy Hall? Yeah, my Grammy. What are you kidding? What did you do, grow up in a Norman Rockwell painting? Diane Keaton. You don't want me to live with you. I don't want you to live with me. Whose idea was it? Mine. Yeah. It was yours, actually, but uh, I approved it immediately. The director's private life is iffy, to say the least. Yeah watching this as a teen getting into the Oscars and discovering those films along the way, it felt catered just to me at the time, like right in tailored to my (laughs) interests and my sense of humor and just felt like such a, like a nugget of gold in a mine of fairly tepid films, especially if you look at this year. I almost find it almost revolutionary at least when I right first saw it, I was like, okay, well, you know, the kind of comedy you kind of expect is more television humor where it's mm. punchline, wait for the reaction, punchline, wait for the reaction. And Annie Hall never, never lets you have a breath. It was, the, it was very 30 rock esque of, yeah. of just, just bang, 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 bang joke. And they, they joke, they don't give you a chance to react and they're responding to that joke. And at the same time, it's not just nonstop jokes. There's, there's a lot of, filtering through it and a lot of depth to go along with it it's not just it's not just funny just for the sake of being funny there's it's funny with purpose and funny to set up a storyline or funny to complement something else um and and i agree it's it's probably it's probably the my second favorite woody allen film um i i love the purple rose of cairo uh, I don't know if I don't know if that'll ever be topped, but I mean, it it's it's tough to watch a Woody Allen movie these days, obviously, just because you're like, man, this is he's doing this the whole time. It's kind of like it's 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 along the same lines of any Kevin Spacey movie. Uh, you're like, well, you know, he was the the toughest one. I'll tell you is uh, uh, the Usual Suspects. The Usual Suspects has the duo of Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer. And you're just like, man, this thing is almost, it's all in the, it's so good. But in the back of your mind, you're just like, man, this is the hair the whole time. Yeah. And Annie Hall is there, but I firmly believe Annie Hall deserves to be in the top five. Annie Hall is as revolutionary to me in the realm of genre as Star Wars is. I'm sure, just going to say sure. for a romantic comedy, it, while it feels firmly rooted in the 1970s style, I think it 
holds up. So far as Woody Allen viewing goes, it's not as uncomfortable to sit through as, say, Manhattan nowadays. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least Diane Keaton's age appropriate. And Diane Keaton is amazing in this film. Yes, yes. <sighs> and uh, we were talking about Richard Dreyfuss being the, uh, the double, you know, did he win for the wrong film? I, I, I believe Diane Keaton won for the correct film, but I have heard it says like, oh, well, looking for Mr. Goodbar is actually her better performance. I don't agree. Mm-mm. I do think it's a good performance, but I don't think you can compare it to a film like Annie Hall. Just watching the Best Picture nominees, like I said earlier, yeah. guarantees yeah. that you'll see all the Best Actress nominees. Yeah. And <laughs> she is, I think she's by far the best of the lot. Marsha Mason or Jane Fonda are like close seconds, but it's Diane Keaton at her most Diane Keaton. We know that that is her personality. Just watch her two years ago giving Parasite the Oscar with Keanu Reeves. (laughs) Like she is like that and the fashion of her, of Annie Hall and just her wit and that awkwardness. I don't know. It's something I really responded to as like, a child you know the the good thing about Annie Hall is you can kind of look at the other performances too and take plenty away from it like I really like Carol Kane I thought she was I thought Carol Kane's great I mean she's mm-hmm. not in it much uh Shelley Duvall's funny I mean it's just it's fun seeing a young Christopher Walken stuff like that you know yeah I mean and uh, even even like you look at it in hindsight and you're like why is Paul Simon in this and he's not really bad. He's, 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 he's pretty good actually. Mm. But, but still like in hindsight, you're like, he's not he, hire a real actor, but yeah, I get yeah. it. Like, and you've, you've sort of caught on to something that I completely forgot in that. It's almost like a cameo film. Absolutely. And it's very much like a filmmaker's film, just having that person behind them in the line critiquing Fellini. Yeah. Is almost on par with like Spielberg casting Truffaut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even like the honest subtitles scene is something that no, no one would have ever seen before and has never really been replicated. Cause if you replicate it, you're just copying any hole. So yeah. Yeah. Or, or uh, being playful with cocaine and not, and not acting like it's the, the actual devil as opposed to being like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a uh, after school special. Like they're like, Oh no, this is a thing. And let's, let's make a joke out of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also for a romantic comedy to win, best picture yes especially in this field is great uh, another romantic comedy that won marty is one of my favorite winners of all time so i Absolutely. definitely respond to rom-coms that are a little bit more original let's just say yeah like yeah. worst person in the world favorite exactly. film of 2021 That's a- it, also my favorite film of 2021 uh Perfect. so i mean exactly you, you get the idea like it's not just there there can be so much depth added and still be romantic and still be funny so i mean it there's yeah it this is a great example of book ending it where you got annie hall and you got worst person in the world and you kind of got the in between there yeah and we had a we had a run long run of some really bad ones so sure. and then then you'd sprinkle in a sleeping with other people and mm-hmm. then you'd sprinkle in you know a, a long shot which will never get the credit it gets but you know stuff mm-hmm. like that yeah, and I shouldn't have mentioned the worst person in the world because I was just imagining a world where that was the front runner for best picture and that was nominated in like five or six different categories. <laughs> Which, if it's, it was an American film, would definitely be 
best pitch well, nominated. You just have to wait three years when somebody makes it and butchers it. It's and, I don't want it to happen. Dakota Johnson. <laughs> okay, Please so don't. I, I don't. I don't mind Dakota Johnson. I've 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 started to turn on her, but I mean. Th- if they said, Hey, we're going to remake worst person in the world. I'm like, please, please don't. It's perfect the way it is. We don't need to redo it. You don't, but they probably will. Like they will another round, all that jazz. Um, The next nominee is the goodbye girl. Technically that apartment belongs to me. Now, do I come up there now? We discuss this amicably or do I storm the place in the morning? Five minutes. The only practical solution is that we share the apartment. Oh, you win, get your bags. You get the small bedroom. We're in trouble, right? Say hello to Richard Dreyfus. My kingdom for the horse! Say hello to Marcia Mason. An actor. Say hello to Quinn Cummings. I think he's kind of cute. He reminds me of a dog that nobody wants. It's a funny one. It's it's Neil Simon, and like the reviews say, it will satisfy people who like Neil Simon's plays. Yeah. But it won't turn any descendants on their head like it's not going to change anyone's opinion on neil simon meaning yeah. it is very much rooted in what made neil simon famous and it's like i said it's an interesting one like it is a romantic comedy and it's also fairly satisfying so far as rom-coms go yeah yeah that's a that's a good way to put it i mean it's it's kind of got all the natural elements of a lot of modern day rom-coms, you know, like uh, single mothers, uh, mouthy kids, uh, eccentric men, uh, the chaos that brews in between, um, you know, like you said, it's, it's whenever I think of the goodbye girl, I always think of just, just like, Oh, that's, that's, that's nice. Just thinking about it. Like it's like, there's not a whole lot of like, even, even with some parts of worst person in the world being a great example, worst person in the world, I love beginning to end, but there are some like potentially if you stop and look at some really rough parts and the goodbye girl doesn't really have that. It's just kind of like light and cheery. Like it's, it's well-made light and cheery. And it's, it's very, it's, it's incredibly Neil Simon-y. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm disappointed. We don't have a Spielbergian. We need a, Simon Simonian. Simonian. There we go. Simonian. Yeah. It's, it's very Simonian. Um, mm-hmm. It's if, if you watch the movie, you're like, well, that's a Neil Simon play. Like it just, it feels like a Neil Simon play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. yeah. Um, I also love how the film flips on its head within the first few minutes. You have Paula and her daughter, Lucy, almost skipping down the Manhattan streets in good cheery fashion. And it feels like a Christmas movie. And then you realize her husband has left her. Yeah. <laughs> and then just flips on its head. But I like how it plays on like this idyllic marriage that they have, this nice apartment, but then also turns into a bit of a riff on the vanity and also insanity of showbiz. When Elliot Garfield arrives, that back and forth volley with him and Paula in the rain when he's in her apartment, she refuses him being there is really just hilarious to me. Elliot starts at an 11 and never really backs down from it, but it's always entertaining. And he's only 30 in this film, which I yeah. found interesting. He looks a lot older. Yeah. At the time, he, you know, f- until Adrian Brody, he was the youngest best actor winner. Mm-hmm. And you, in, it's funny. I always, 
uh, I always associate certain films with certain very specific things. And whenever I think about the Goodbye Girl, I always think of the same thing. It's from the uh, game Seen It. Uh, I'm not sure if you ever played it. It's it's like a board game, but it has a DVD comparison. It's all movie related questions. Mm -hmm. So you put a DVD in, you roll the dice and whatever you do it, you do it based off of the DVD question. And a lot of times it'd be multimedia and you're like, uh, who won an Oscar for this? Uh, what is the name of this movie that this actor with it? Richard Dreyfuss won an Oscar. And it's the scene where he's in the bathroom and he's playing around and then hits the hits the banister of the door before he goes in the other room. And I always think of that, that and then goes into the other room. And that's that's kind of the epitomization of that performance in general. It's mm -hmm. it's woohoo, hit the doorbell and you go on. And then that's just kind of what it is. Um, it's enjoyable, but uh, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with what he did. Like like we said before, Dreyfus is doing just fine and he's just on 11 and Mason is doing much more interesting work. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally correct in saying that Mason's doing more interesting work. Also the fact that the daughter, not sure how old she is, she's a child, but she was nominated for the Oscar. She has maybe the worst lines in the film. I just have to say. <laughs> so Quinn Cummings nomination is not really something that I can get behind, but also yeah. not the worst in that category. Um, <laughs> we'll once again get to. Yes, we will. And <laughs> So, so it's, it's funny. I have my own list of my own nominations. I still have Quinn Cummings in there, not because I think she was specifically good. I just don't think there were, there was not a ton of great supporting actress performances that I found, but, uh, yeah. but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. I mean, on the note of supporting actress nominees, especially personal ones, like I would nominate Terry Gar from Close Encounters. Uh, I should, she might I, I should have a lot to do in that film, but I don't know. I found her. I found her uh, neurosis like fairly refreshing in a sci-fi film. I have to say. So I, uh, I, I, I took a pair of ladies from uh, Equus. Uh, Never seen Ginny, that one. Uh, oh, that's it's. I don't know. It's it's not my favorite film from 1977, which is uh, Close Encounters, but it's second. Um, mm -hmm. It's a it's very stagey. It's very play like videotape a play. But it's still right. it's 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 probably the best acted film in my opinion, and um, Joan Plowright is in it too, and she's remarkable, and uh, she might be my winner, but I haven't figured that out yet. Uh, but yeah, so I I I am not as annoyed by Quinn Cummings as you are, but uh, but <laughs> but of course I have children, so I look at it and be like, <laughs> I look endearing. at it, it's 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 somewhat endearing, but you yeah. know you always have that over precocious kid and yeah. whenever involved in that i know and that seems like something that i don't know if the goodbye girl cemented that but it maybe yeah. like gave studios an idea that that's how you can frame children in films like this yeah. because it seems that there's always a child in a rom-com like that nowadays yeah yeah and and even whenever there are situations where there are kids who don't do that they're lauded for not doing that like mm -hmm. if you think about um uh, in uh, Little Miss Sunshine, where Abigail Breslin is just yeah. a kid, yeah. she's she's not she's not overly talkative. She talks to her grandpa. She talks about her grandpa about real things, asks dumb questions, and generally stays in the back and stays quiet. Like it's very kid like, and it's such a subversion for what you usually expect. The chatterboxes, the uh, Dakota Fanning and I am Sam, probably being the apex of overly precocious kids. Yes, and she's just 
she's just, oh no, my, my, you know, I'm smarter than my dad. That's the entire process of the, that's the entire idea of the movie, but still at the same time, you're like, well, this is, this is patently ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And at the time I, I I always, I, I look at that a lot too. Like if you see four weddings and a funeral, and Love you're watching film. it, you're yeah, and you're, you're like, oh, this is great. It's it's a hilarious, and they do a dressing room scene where Andy McDowell's trying on dresses, and you know Hugh Grant is sitting there, and he's you know it's the the cliche of it, and you're like, oh man, what a cliche they did this. And I'm like, wait, they didn't they didn't start that they didn't keep this cliche going. They created the cliche, mm-hmm. like they were the thing that went like, okay that's a fun little trick. We'll do that in rom-coms. And it's kind of the same thing with Quinn Cummings in this. It's like, okay, this is the precocious kid. We're going to keep it going. Yeah. And I think that to speak a little bit more about Marsha Mason in this film, yeah, like yeah. you said, she's doing, I think the most complicated work in the film where she has this hysteria to her, where she just cannot believe that she's being screwed over once again by an actor but then she also has another side to her where you get to see her trying to mount or remount her dancing career. But because she is older than a certain age, she can't succeed. Tying that into how Elliot is as an actor, where his main focus is clashing with the director who, whose vision he does not agree with. Yeah. And just the ego of Elliot versus the sort of desperation of Paula. You know, she has those scenes where they're stripped away and it's bare emotions. And they happen about three quarters of the way into the film. Yeah. Whereas he also comes down a little bit, but then he's right back into his usual uh, shtick. And yeah. after a yeah. while, it does get really grating. And I will have to say, like, that was something that I didn't really respond to. I remember reading that Ebert criticized the first half but really liked how it turned out in the end where I'm the opposite. I was really into it for the first hour. And then it had, it lost me a little bit because it just became like really silly. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, like it's the, the sincerity is a little um, misguided at times, like the sincerity slash uh, uh, silliness, as you said, like it, it, it's, it starts so silly just to kind of get you involved in it. And then once it gets sincere, it kind of rid it like it almost defaults back to silly. It's like, okay, well, we're not going away from this. We're not going mm-hmm. super serious. So, uh, and I think that's, um, that's probably a reason, like if they're going to point to anything to criticize the film for, it's probably Herbert Ross. And that's probably why he actually missed the best director nomination because I mean, also, you just kind of look at the films they're in. I mean, if you, if you can blame anything for, it's like, if you want to criticize something about the film, it's like, well, it's not Dreyfus or Mason or Cummings, and we like the movie, and obviously it's Neil Simon. We're not going to talk about the writing. Where can you kind of poke holes? The directing would be the one to poke mm-hmm. it in, even though it might be more of a writing thing. I think it's a little bit of both. I don't think yeah. Herbert Ross is that inspired of a director. Yeah, and we see that yeah. through the turning point. He's very two-dimensional. <laughs> Do you want to get to it? We'll get to Julia speak. first. Oh, okay, okay. I was about we, to say, speak. Okay, yeah. Let's... The turning point with what we finish on. Okay, Just let's. The alphabet. That, say best for last. Uh, uh, Julia. They must face the harsh realities of life. Get out! Get out! 
Miss Julia has asked me to see you. What, what's the trouble? Has something happened to Julia? You are going to Moscow by way of Vienna. Yes. We would like to change your travel plans. We would like you to travel by way of Berlin. Madame Herrmann? We would like you to carry for us $50,000. We are a small group who work against Hitler. We can't be sure who anyone is anymore. It's a Fred Zinnemann film. Uh, it's probably lesser Fred Zinnemann. An old-fashioned film that feels very old Hollywood. It's a costume drama set around World War II, which it calls my name. That's my kind of film. You have handsome production design, pensive writing. It won adapted screenplay and fiery performances and Jane Fonda, who, by the way, looks great in 1930s costumes. I could picture her as a starlet from that time. Great hats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even the fur hat. I mean, it's a, oh. it's a whole thing in the film. Like I said, an easy second place in Best Actress even though Diane Keaton is an undeniable winner. But what are your thoughts on Julia? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I went into it specifically watching it for the Oscar nominations, essentially. Like going in, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this thing, this thing's got a bunch of nominations. Cool. A uh, bunch of acting. And I'm looking out for everybody. I know Jason Robards in one, and I know Vanessa Redgrave in one. And I'm like, okay, there's Max, Maximilian Schell, and there's Jim Fonda. And I'm keeping keeping everything on my toes, and the entire time I'm just like, I don't really care about this movie. Like it's 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 hard to get into. Yeah, it's, it doesn't give you much room to be engaged, especially the pacing. It's way yeah, too it's, consistent and a bit meandering at times. It's all over the place, and and even at times, you're just like, like she's like, oh, and it's the name Julia is spoken about more than actually her being on screen. Mm-hmm. It's more, it's more the aura of her than the actual execution. And it doesn't, it, it's, it's a lot of Jane Fonda spinning and uh, Jason Robards is Dashiell Hammett trying to keep her in line being like, no, no, it'll be fine. We can, it, she'll be all right. And, and then getting little flashes and then you're kind of confused about what that flashes meant. And then she goes around and then you're kind of back and forth. And all of a sudden it has to do with, it's 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 so much odd it, it, it's it's very inconsistently toned um yeah like like you you would you, you kind of go in like okay world war ii holocaust adjacent um famous people doing famous things there are nazis around you're like okay I'm, I'm i'm all on board with this i know what's going on and it just never really connects mm-hmm. and um looking at it the entire time i'm just like what, what, what did everybody see that I missed? And I don't know many people who are like head over heels in love with this movie. As, you know, your comment of what did I miss that other people saw is a bit funny to me because this film was not a critical darling. Like it was yeah. given mediocre reviews. A lot of people or reviewers mentioning the underdeveloped characters how the flashbacks were a disservice to the film, that they didn't keep it flowing, that they kept pulling it back. And there's this dullness that that exists in some scenes that feels like such a weight on the film's flow. Even though I will say this was a film that I enjoyed for what it was worth, even though it is very flawed. Um, And you can't mention this film without mentioning just the absurd supporting actor win. Of Jason Robards, <laughs> which it's, makes no sense. No goddamn I, sense. 
Okay, so I will I, I'll I'll raise you a Jason Robards. I'll I'll see your Jason Robards and raise you a Maximilian Shell, because whenever he was showed up, and I'm like, hey, there's Maximilian Shell. It's like, oh, he's astronaut, and he's going to do something else. I'm like, what? That's it. That's that's literally all there was. I mean, it's literally a three minute scene. He's just says his thing, and that's that. And I was like, there wasn't even anything that was memorable about him. Like, if I didn't know it was Maximilian Shell. I'm not sure anybody else would have known. Like I knew who I knew it was him. I was like, okay, I've seen this guy before. There he is. He has his little scene, his little, Oh yeah, Julia. Yeah. I know who you are. Da, 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 da. And then that's that. And he's, he makes no impression and it moves on. You're going to hate this then. Cause he's actually my winner. <laughs> Come on. Do you know, I didn't even know that was him. I saw Maximilian show in the opening credits and I kept waiting for him to appear because <laughs> I had, I had him, I had that look that he has in judgment at Nuremberg in mind. Oh, the younger version of him. The younger yeah, version yeah, not, of him. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mind you, this is only 16 years later. Like he aged really quickly. Um, yeah. But did not recognize that was him. But I also love that train the scene that he has at the train station yeah he has yeah. to relay that information to lillian hellman who by the way the worst spy ever <laughs> she like it's like as, as like i'm just i'm looking i'm watching the movie i'm like okay i know she's not going to be caught but i'm like nazis what are you doing here like yeah. she's it's wide open you got to catch her like <laughs> i do like that little like look in his eye when he tells her walter Franz, second class fourth carriage that information and that's when that sort of train sequence begins and that to me was the most compelling part of the film uh the way Lillian Hellman panics as she has to funnel this money on behalf of Julia um and having those people in the compartment and not knowing whether they're like-minded but it's obviously too risky to say and then realizing that they are a part of the mission as well Mm. just the way that the compartment mates if you will grab the chocolate the candy box the chocolate box yeah, because yeah. if they don't that will be searched for yeah. whatever reason and then they offer the nazi a uh, bonbon and it's just a very like i don't know i just love that scene and i wish the film had that urgency to it yeah whenever i watched it i i i, I specifically said i, I kept i use the word vapid more than once mm-hmm. and i was like it's it's there's not a clear sense of story but there are some real moments that do pop you're like, man, that's a, that's a good scene. Now that when she initially gets on the train, it's intense. And then the, the scene specifically where the last time, not to spoil, but last time that Lillian meets Julia, that scene in the restaurant is like, that's a, that's a great scene. It's a great mm-hmm. scene for uh, Redgrave. It's a great scene for Fonda and the entire, like, man, this is, they had something here, but they just couldn't have they, the, any momentum they had. They just crushed it immediately by doing something else. Or just a part of the film's plot. I mean, Lillian can't spend that much time with Julia because she has three hours to spend in Berlin. But once you build that momentum and every time they go back to that beach house, and it's also where Jason Robards majority of his scenes are, if not all of his scenes are, but once again, he's just not doing much and I don't, I can't comprehend it. And it's been a while since I've seen all the president's men, but I hope he's better in that film. Uh, Oh, he is. So, so I think, I think it was, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, he's it must be the momentum off of no, all the president's men because he's so good in that movie. It's like, well, OK, well, it's just like, let's just give him another one for this one for stupid reasons. It's 
in hindsight, it makes zero sense, not only because it's, it seemed like there were alternatives that would have been more acceptable. Now, do you know the story about who was supposed to probably win Best Supporting Actor? Wasn't it Shell or was it Barishnikov? Uh, it was supposed to be, um, it was actually neither of them. It was supposed to be Richard Burton. Everybody went into that season. I mean, like Richard Burton's finally going to get his Oscar mm. because he's in this movie Equus and, you know, he's, he's the, and, and the, the focus of the, of the, of the film was, is on uh, Peter Firth, the Peter Firth character. And in reality, Richard Burton's a lesser character. Um, but then the film came out and it flopped. And so uh, it, it was well critically, but and it flopped. So instead of doing that, they flipped the roles of who was nominated and where. So they put Peter Firth in supporting actor and then Richard Burton was in lead actor. So it kind of left a vacuum. You're like, we were, we were ready to give Richard Burton his Oscar. And it left this vacuum and it ended up another one for Jason Robards. That's, that's disappointing. It's very disappointing, especially because Richard Burton is spectacular in Equus. And also, in my personal Best Actor ballot of 1977, Peter Firth is a Best Actor nominee along with Richard Burton, and he is better than Richard Burton. So he should have been in the, the winner of this category because he is spectacular. For supporting actress Vanessa Redgrave, win makes a little bit more sense and it all relies on that scene that we mentioned in the Berlin yes. restaurant um, although I did want a little bit more especially because the film is named Julia <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> even though her character has this sort of everlasting mystery to her not really that ghostly fant- phantasmic presence that you'd expect for a film called Julia that has Julia yeah. in the backdrop like you forget she is still alive for yeah, a good yeah. sum you of go that long, film. You go long stretches, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I for what for a cracked out supporting actress ballot of 1977, <sighs> I would put Meryl Streep in. Even <sighs> if she don't think that's Oscar nomination worthy, she kind of steals the show for a little bit. I mean, when you're watching, you're like, holy moly, look at Meryl Streep. Like- <laughs> mm-hmm. And doing what she does, the accent, the affectations oh. of like an old Hollywood uh, star. It's just, it's just great. <laughs> so um, fun fact, uh, you know what other role Meryl Streep auditioned for from 1977? I think I know, but I go ahead. It's the Terry Gar role in yeah. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure it works. It's she's a little too delicate. Uh, Terry Gar is such a uh, force, uh, f- such a personality. And I think mm-hmm. that Meryl Streep would maybe put too much subtlety into it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, li- I like how it worked out. But I do agree with you. Didn't Meryl Streep, again, great hats in this film. Uh, I think she has this, this huge looks like a, I want to say it was like a, a you know, a, a Kentucky Derby hat whenever I first see her. I mean, if you're going to give Julia anything, any credit, the costumes are out of control. Yeah, no, to your point about perhaps substituting or replacing Terika. Yeah, I think Meryl exists in a close up, even in Julia, she's framed in that close up, whereas Terika yeah. fills the room with her personality, yes. like you said. Yes. Let's move on to 
Star Wars. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. How about you start? Okay. Because I will say it's something I admire more than I like. I am no, by no means a Star Wars buff. Um, hopefully you can save this segment. <laughs> Not that I uh, luckily, hate the film, but luckily I, I can like, um, you know, I always said they they always say like, are you a war or a Trek guy? And I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I've always been a wars guy. It's mostly because whenever we were kids, me and my brothers, we would like, my parents would go out and we were old enough. We would stay home. Well, it, we'd see if it was like, okay, how long are they gone? Can we watch star Wars? Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi all in a row before they get back. We did this every time they left. Every time they left. So I've watched it dozens upon dozens of times. And I remember the little George Lucas vignette beforehand, the THX, the the, the sound. Like it's it's so ingrained in my mind. And as a kid, I loved it. I was like, then this thing's the best. And whenever I first kind of became an Oscar obsessive. I was like, okay, Star Wars 77, it totally won Best Picture and everything else. And I'm like, what the hell is Annie Hall? And kind of kind of went from there. But I've always had, a, always obviously, a, a, a love for Star Wars. And I always said to myself, it's like, I don't care about it. Like, let's say this is a, a ten, uh, you know, five years ago before Force Awakens comes out. They're like, oh, we're, and I saw the prequels. I thought they were terrible. I liked, I liked the original Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Return of the Jedi didn't like the prequels. So they're like, okay, they're coming out with a sequel. It's like, okay, I don't care. And then I saw the preview and I had Han Solo and Chewbacca on it. And I got shivers. I'm like, oh, wow, I do care. And I was like, okay, well, am I missing something here? And I went back and watched, you know, Empire Strikes Back is by far and away the best of all the Star Wars films. I always had a fondness for Return of the Jedi. For some reason, there's just something about the last battle that I always remembered certain things about, even though all the Ewoks and stuff is a little much. The original Star Wars is kind of weird. Like it's it's not 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 weird in like it goes in weird places. It's just kind of it's tonally strange. It's it's kind of like it kind of kicks off and then it stops and it kicks off and then, then all of a sudden you're almost done. You're like mm-hmm. it goes a lot quicker than you expect it to go, and it's not as in depth as you expect. Weirdly episodic. That's yeah, very. How it's, I described it, watching bits of it this time. Um, I, like I said, I don't have a deep connection to this film, but a lot of the film, or just a fair amount of it, does make me laugh nowadays. Sure, but I sure. think that's fair. I mean, there's something about like just the way the characters are introduced, um, the visual effects, which unfortunately you can't appreciate as much as like Close Encounters. If we're once again going to compare them, uh, I don't. Want, I feel like it's it's like an Avatar situation. Yes. Where yes, it was groundbreaking at its time, but you can definitely see uh, the progress that we've made since. Yeah, and and, and I think all, that's fair yeah. to say. It's a, it's also a a director who bastardized his own child. Like he he made this thing, and then he grew upon the thing, and the success is such a to such a level that nobody could ever tell him what he had to do again, and because of that, he kept messing with his thing that made him famous hmm. and the reissue of star wars i think it was 97 97 on the 20 year they reissued them all and with better visual effects and better scenes and cut scenes and stuff like that like so 
not in the if you if you ever find an original Star Wars print, the just it's the effects do hold up pretty well. It's it's just you know the the it, you could tell their models and then the lasers and all that kind of stuff. It's not bad. And then there the reissues are mostly the ones you find. Like there's a scene where Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt have a scene together in the original, and it looks laughably terrible hmm. just because it's they, they they threw cgi in there and it's 1997 cgi which is not today's cgi and today's cgi still wouldn't make it look flawless so whenever i think of star wars in this star wars i think of what it was in 1977 as opposed to what it is now watching star wars and i can't imagine i can't imagine a world where you go into a movie theater and you're like, hey, who's the handsome guy with the vest? And he turns into Harrison Ford, very much given a nothing introduction. Like a lot of times, like you think of like stagecoach when John Wayne is first introduced and you're like, that guy is a movie star. Just just the way they frame him, they're like, this guy is going for it and he is going to make it happen. And, and Harrison Ford in this movie just isn't. And Alec Guinness gets a more gets a much more movie star hello than anything else. But I mean, I see it as more of a happy accident than I do an actual, like, it's not the masterpiece that everybody makes it out to be personally. It, it's, a, it's a good foundation, and then it is built upon in better spots. But it's a, it's a very odd tonal film. It is. And there's also something that's like a historical artifact to it. Like, you watch it, and you might not feel a connection to it, but you can at least visually appreciate yeah the cinematography the technical yeah. elements um and i think it's both it's interesting to look at from both a 70s standpoint and a modern outlook but then again not my favorite film um yeah you know i like i said i i know there are people who are diehard star wars fans and i'm not trying to ruffle feathers by saying oh it's a terrible film but <laughs> i'm just saying i don't have a a connection to it i know what and you mean. I know. even but the thing i do like actually is and maybe this is a shallow interpretation but it's to see lucas's influences and his love for cinema yeah through absolutely like kurosawa for instance the white edits i mean to me that is like the cool part of star wars yeah i agree it's i mean it's it's essentially um it's the spielberg it's the spielberg ideal of working within the confines of the studio, but going really hard against what the studio like, Hey, we're going to try this. And like, that doesn't sound like the greatest of ideas. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It, it. It's like, and the studio goes, okay, this is going to be a disaster and we can get rid of this loon. But it turned out to be the biggest money-making thing at the time, but it was it's still very arty. So, I mean, it all makes sense. It's, 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 it makes sense why Close Encounters and Star Wars at the same time. It's, it's also, it also is poetic justice that Spielberg and Lucas would just be hand in hand for the rest of their lives, essentially. Should we move on to our final nominee? I guess. Trying to hold on to him. A story of ambition. Am I like you? I don't want to be anybody's mother. Envy. Be glad for me, Mama. I thought it would make you happy if your daughter could become what you wanted to be and never could be. Despair. Amelia, I love you. Not my daughter. You keep your hands off my daughter. An extraordinary view of a world so glamorous, so exciting, 
so demanding that only a few can survive. A moving and romantic story about that crucial moment in every life when a choice must be made. So it's Herbert Ross's <sighs> other Best Picture nominee. Yes, And it it's the ballet-centric, <laughs> the turning point. Now, this film received 11 nominations and famously won zero. 11 feels too generous. Zero wins <laughs> feels just right. Unlike The Color Purple, <laughs> which deserved several wins from its 11 nods. I mentioned yeah. both of them because they both tied for the most sure. nominations without a win. Unless The Power of the Dog trumps them both. We'll see. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I doubt it, but we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, this film is too melodramatic for its own good and way too slow. Very slow. Um, it, it, it's, it's too slow. It has, there's too many threads. It's trying too many storylines, but not caring about those storylines, not putting the efforts into those storylines mm -hmm. and then having these characters and you could tell they really like ballet. Uh, oh, yeah. and the montage and that's about, in the middle, uh, the, the absolute thousand percent best parts of this film are anytime they're doing actual ballet. And like seeing all this kind of stuff. That being said, I really do like Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine in this. I think they're good. I think they play well off each other. I think they're doing a good job at it, especially Anne Bancroft. Mm -hmm. Everything else, I don't know what the hell's going on. Sure. And just that ballet montage, which ballet by design is incredible. So it's obviously going to keep you engaged. But yeah, that obviously. format, the font, that was just channeling like an Oscar presentation, if you will. Sure. Especially sure. from that decade. Um, but yeah, I think there's not, there was not enough real conflict to keep you intrigued. And yeah. so it's like soapy without the polish. And it's very old Hollywood in that sense or classic Hollywood. But, you know, at least directors like Douglas Sirk, who blossomed in melodrama, at least managed yeah. an aesthetic. Like this film yeah. is just dry to look at. Uh, as cinematography nominee, and you're absolutely correct. Even even the the ballet scenes, like you're like, oh wow, look at the ballet, look at the artistry on, uh, like you had Mikhail Baryshnikov at at his peak of his powers, doing crazy stuff and all this kind of things, and it's just you're just looking at it, hmm. like if it wasn't for the artistry on in, in presented, there wouldn't be anything there to look at. Mm -hmm. um, can I? I'm going to be mean for a second. Leslie Brown is, th is one of the top three worst Oscar nominations I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely. She is, she is less than zero. She is, she is a negative personality and I'm not talking about, Oh, being negative. I'm just like, she has a less than zero personality. She is, I was watching this and like, I, I did same thing with Julia. I went into it. I'm like, okay, Bancroft, McLean, Barishnikov, Brown, and Barishnikov is dancing around and with tights and it's the seventies. So I can explain that. I can, that, that can be explained away. It's like, okay, he was, he was nominated for his star power outside of film. I can, mm. you, you, I can, I can understand that reasoning. Leslie Brown's nomination is one of the most baffling I've ever seen in my life because there's nothing there. It's not fun. 
I don't cheer for this girl. I actively want her to be injured. It, <laughs> there's just it. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing for this woman. And I know a real film critic who thinks this is the best performance of 1977. I don't know how he still maintains his dignity when he says this, but this is what they say. I didn't see a glimmer of anything. Neither did I. And you don't want to root for her. You actively want no. her to you lose. Want her to fail. Absolutely. Just because of like, and it, it's a thing where it's like you're rooting for someone who has a, let's just say a famous mother. Yes. Am I going yes. to root for a nepotism baby? That doesn't make me want to <laughs> want them to succeed. I think yeah, I am totally in agreement with you. I will actually lump Barishnikov with Leslie Brown and say that this film has the misfortune of having both one of the some of the worst supporting actor and supporting actress nominate nominations Unreal. of all time. Absolutely. Um, I think both of them were rewarded for their ballet skills, but this is not a dancing prize. This is no. an acting prize. And they don't have good acting scenes or acting moments. When Leslie Brown's character gets the role or is offered a part in the company, she comes screaming into the room with this just like grating tonal pitch where she just says, I want to be, they asked me to be in the company. Oh yeah. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, uh, uh, listeners, you got, you got away with it because you don't have to see my face, the, the, my Leslie Brown impression, but I mean, <laughs> she, she's, she's so nothing there. And like you said, it's just, it's just this small little voice and you're like, Oh, she's going to go off the rails. Is that going to be interesting? Nope. Is nope. she, is she going to rebound and keep her dignity? Yep. Is that interesting? Nope. Like it's just, what about the chemistry with Bershnikov? Nope. Like, uh, okay. Well, there's, it was, it was never there from the beginning. It was never there at the end. The funny thing is I didn't know who Leslie Brown was. So I went into it cold and I'm like, okay, well, Leslie Brown must be this lady. And I thought it was, uh, I thought it was, uh, Alexandra, uh, Den- uh, like the, 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 yeah, like the ballet den mother. Oh, yeah. I was like, I was like, Oh, this lady's fun. Is that it? And I was like, Oh, it's not her. No, no. It's, uh, 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 or maybe I thought it was Martha Scott who plays the, the head of the company, whoever it was. I was like, well, they have, they're way better than this girl. This girl can't be the one who's nominated for an Oscar. And boy, was I wrong. Ugh. I will say the thing that keeps me at least slightly entertained is the leading performances from Anne Bancroft and yes. Shirley MacLaine. Anne Bancroft, I think, has the media role. Um, but then again, the film is so dated in its prospects of women v. women. You can only <laughs> choose one, a career or a child. You know, you can't have both at the same time. How dare you do both. Yeah. I have to say some of the characterizations of like gay people, especially through ballet, was were laughable. It was so random that thing <laughs> moment where Shirley MacLaine and her husband are having that conversation on the bed. You know, I married you because people were saying you, that you were gay. I was like, what does this have to do with anything? Like, this is not high stakes drama. Why are you bringing this up? Like, <laughs> and why now? <laughs> so, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll piggyback that off of uh, um, a movie I mentioned earlier, Looking for Mister Goodbar. Um, mm, Tuesday, you know, Woe. Yeah, Tuesday, Tuesday, Woe was a nominee nominee for uh, supporting actress. Much, much, much better than Leslie. Mm-hmm. But um, um, in that film, it's it's kind of along the same lines. There's terrible depictions of what homosexuality is and you're just like well that's not it, it's a very after score specially 
But at the same time, the entire idea of this character that Diane Keaton plays is uh, she's a very sexualized teacher who goes out and has drug, does drugs and, all, uh, and has sex and all this kind of stuff. It's essentially she has the audacity to have casual sex and not want kids. And they're just like, ooh, like it's 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 spooky. They, they make it out like a boogeyman. boogeyman it's yeah. like, can you imagine this woman would do that? And I'm like, looking at it, looking at it through today's lens, I'm like, this lady seems fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I mean, obviously you probably shouldn't do cocaine. And, but at the same time, like the, the, all the, all the, oh, I have casual sex. And it's like, who cares? Like it's, mm-hmm. but, uh, and the turning point kind of does the same thing. And they really, really gloss over the Shirley MacLaine, affair thing real quick yes like, i mean shirley mcclain just has an affair and they just go like e- even leslie brown's character goes i know what you're doing and she goes it's fine and then she eventually breaks it off i guess off screen mm-hmm. and then that's that and it yeah. there's no real consequences <laughs> and you keep waiting for this catharsis in the characters that never comes even if the film thinks that it is giving us what we want when you have Shirley talking to her husband outside of the recital um in the foyer then you have Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine's characters uh look uh, fighting in that plaza where Shirley MacLaine once again is screaming about her daughter which I love pre-terms of endearment but it's just silly like you know it's a thing where they can fight but then at the end they can laugh it off because they're good friends even if they brought up some Yes, even though they brought up some real <laughs> trauma. Yeah. It's just like in, in real life, these words mean something. And yeah. it's like you say something, you're like, boy, that hurt. That's going to cut hard. And in reality, they just go, they, you know, slap they, each other they laugh in the it butt. Off. Yeah. They laugh, they slap each other in the butt 15 times and then they laugh it off and everything's fine. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, where was the resolution there? Like, I like it's. It's very yeah. much like, oh, we'll argue, but we'll punch each other and then we'll buy each other a beer and that's that. It's essentially, that's essentially what it ends with. Because I was just going to mention, you know, yeah, I got like Black Swan, a film that uh, piggybacks off this assumed drama that exists in ballet. I think people just combine the physicality of it and the drama that exists on stage. Oh, it must be yeah. like this behind the scenes. Yeah. Even though I feel like every ballet dancer in the world was like black swan is not accurate but <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it's 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 one of it's uh you know you essentially it's funny because this movie you know the 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 lasting thing that this movie has is nothing else than Owen 11 like i don't know i don't know many people have seen this movie mm-hmm. even though it got 11 oscar nominations Shirley mcclain and bancroft barishnikov in the 70s and it's just like, oh, that's the movie that didn't win any not win any Oscars after being nominated for much. That's all it's known for. I had not had any reason to try to seek it out until you invited me on this podcast. I was like, mm. oh, I guess I should eventually watch this. And it's I did. Very hard I like, to find. It is hard to find. Yeah, you're right. So I mean, it was one of those things. So um, it, it very little cultural impact, like you said. Thank God for the red shoes to actually have something with some actual you know, yeah. red shoes and black swan. I mean, far enough apart, but in the middle of this, this is not a part of it. Yeah. And it finds itself in a category that did have cultural impact through Star yes. Wars, through Annie Hall, and even the yes. non-nominated Close Encounters. Yeah. yeah. Now, did Close Encounters of the Third Kind deserve a Best Picture nomination? Unequivocally, yes. Um, yes, I agree. If I had my top five, um, 
Star Wars, Annie Hall, and Close Encounters would be in my top five. Um, mm-hmm. Same. Julie and the Turning Point would be nowhere near it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm very partial to Equus, and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. The uh, the Italian film A Special Day. I have it. Is that Marcello Mastroianni? Yes, uh, him and uh, Sophia Loren. A uh, mm-hmm. very, very, very exceptional movie. It's on. Uh, I think it's on Criterion Channel. If you have the chance, it's really good. Um, just outside, by the way, just outside of the top five, I have Sorcerer, um, the William Friedkin movie that uh, tried his best to ruin his career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good movie. And then uh, also Smoking the Bandit, uh, a, uh, in a the Southern American staple that Smoking the Bandit is. Um, Jackie Gleason is probably in my top five supporting actors that year. It's hard to believe that Close Encounters missed out. I think we Shocking. covered a bit of the reasons, a few of the reasons why. Um, and to make room for Close Encounters, we have to take one out. And I think we're both going to take out the turning point. Sure. Even if we're altering history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oscar history. Losers. There's got to be something else. Like, it was nominated for sound. There's got to be another stupid nomination we can get. It's it's not visual effects. Hold, I'm going to find one. I'm going to find a terrible something it can be nominated for you can't you're telling me there's not an original song a terrible original song from that movie that was not they they nominated for everything anyway close encounters a great film to revisit i'm glad i did because i found a new appreciation and that's what we always want isn't it? absolutely yeah but where can people find your work uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am Neb is Ben. Um, I am roaming around there saying stupid things, being on podcasts like this. I'm the David Thewlis of podcasting. Um, you find me on my personal site, icecreamforfreaks.com. I talk about all sorts of movie reviews and uh, Oscar adjacent things. Um, I'll be doing, uh, I have my, I'll release my best of 77 list uh, to go along with this podcast, to go along with that. Uh, and then uh, you can also find me on the film experience and cinema scholars um, and follow me and I'll usually follow you back as long as you're not a loon. <laughs> and you can find out of Oscar podcast on the platforms that you listen to your podcast episodes release fortnightly. And the Twitter handle is at out of Oscar pod. Thank you for sticking around and for listening to this episode and we'll catch you in a fortnight.